0: Welcome to Hidden Headlines, Faith, Family, Freedom. I'm Brian Sussman. In this episode, Citizenship and the Census. The Liberals are in a tizzy because President Trump demands that the question of citizenship be addressed in the 2020 Census. Is the President desiring something that's out of the ordinary? And what value is there in asking about one's citizenship? Also, a topic that fits neatly into this subject the Electoral College. It's the complicated way in which we elect our president, and the left wants to abolish this system because it allowed Donald Trump to be elected without a majority of voters nationwide. But the question is do we really want a nation wherein majority rules? We're going to unpack this and more in this episode of Hidden Headlines. By the way, Additional information on this episode can be found at bryansusman.com. Just check the blog. Also, you can utilize my website to reach out to me via email. Plus, there's Facebook, Brian Sussman Show, and Twitter, Brian underscore Sussman. Listening to the establishment media, it would appear as if Donald Trump's administration is the first in the history of the United States to inquire about one's citizenship in the census. In fact, The left makes it sound as if no country on the planet asks such a question, when in fact Mexico does, whenever they do a census, Canada does, whenever they do a census. So again, folks, it's fake news. Under the Constitution, once every 10 years, the federal government is required to count every person in the country, the census. The data is gathered mainly by sending each household a form to fill out and then asking a set of questions about everyone who's living in that home on a particular date, including their sex, their race, their age, and many other details, including things like how many toilets are in your home. And of course, gasp, census workers visit homes and use other perfectly legal techniques to try make the count as complete as possible now what's the purpose of this well the primary purpose of the census is to determine based on the population how many seats each state will have in the house of representatives and by extension how many votes there should be in the electoral college which we'll get into in just a little bit But census data is also used for a great many other purposes as well, including the allocation of nearly a trillion dollars in federal spending each year. And that tax-generated cash helps pay for everything from public schools to Medicaid to law enforcement to highway repairs and right on down the line. Additionally, state and local governments can also use the data in similar ways, including setting boundaries for the legislative districts. So in a nutshell, as intrusive as it may seem to some, and it is kind of a pain to fill the thing out, takes a little time, the census is a big deal. And I contend if you have nothing to hide, why even worry about things? Now, the Justice Department of the Trump administration says it wants the question included in the census because it needs to have a more accurate count of how many Americans are eligible to vote. The Commerce Department says it needs the information to enforce the Voting Rights Act, which bars discrimination against racial or or language or minority groups in the conduct of of elections. Opponents say this citizenship question is being asked to frighten non-citizens. Frighten them away from participating in the census, whether they're in the country legally or not. Now, these assailants, in my, in my, in my opinion, are also being, are also using this issue as another tool to, of course, label Trump and his supporters as racist. And It was earlier this week, Nancy Pelosi came out. And she said, you know, the, the MAGA hat, the MAGA hat, the Make America, she couldn't even say it, Make America Great Again. But she said the MAGA hat, the make American, make America, and then she stopped and she said, make America white again. That's what it means, make America white again. See, they go racial whenever they can because they can't win this debate on substance. They can't win these debates on the facts. They've got to go right to the emotions. This, by the way, is also why we have the Electoral College, which, again, we'll talk about in just a moment. So... As I mentioned, our neighbors to the North and South ask about citizenship in their census questionnaire. Even the ultra-liberal United Nations recommends the practice of inquiring about, about one's citizenship. The United States, by the way, used to directly ask about citizenship in the censuses over the years. Uh, Since 1950, the question has not been included in the census forms that most people receive. However, a much longer, more detailed questionnaire is sent to a small sample of households chosen at random. And on that survey, the citizenship question does appear. Now, many in the news media often refer to 1950 as the last time the Census Bureau asked all the households about the United States uh, citizen, about U.S. citizenship status. But they're completely mum on whether the question has been asked in prior Decades. They want to make you believe as if the first time it was ever asked was 1950. Not true. The first U.S. census was taken way back in 1790. The question was not asked. The first time the question was directly asked of U.S. household members was in 1820. And then again, it was asked in 1830. Then there was a 30-year pause. Then the query reappeared in 1870... And the question was asked again from 1890 to 1940. And then in 1950, census workers asked about the birthplace of every member in each household. And the question on the census worksheet was, what state or foreign country was each each person born in? If the answer revealed someone had been born outside the United States, then a census worker was sent to the home, to immediately ask whether the person was naturalized, which would mean that the person had become a U.S. citizen. So they followed up with a person knocking on your door and coming to your house. The question was dropped in 1960, reappeared in 1970 for a randomly chosen 5% of the population, and then from 1980 to 2000, it was also asked to one-sixth of the population. But by and large, in over half the census that we've had here in the United States of America, the question has been asked. So unlike how the census was conducted in 1950, the citizenship question that the Trump administration wants to ask next year is old school and very direct. Is this person a citizen of the United States? The 2020 question, if it's included in these census forms, is intended to collect the citizenship status of every person living in each U.S. household, regardless of birthplace. Now, the Census Bureau says... They must begin with this immense job of printing census questionnaires right away in order to conduct the 2020 count. But the left is doing everything possible to prevent this from going forward. Everything possible. And by the way, in the latest poll from the Associated Press, 53% of American citizens want a citizenship question asked in the 2020 census. 32% say no. So the left is... They're, they're representing a minority here once again. They underestimate the people of the United States of America, most of whom say we would like a census. Uh, we would like, I should say, the citizenship question to come up on the census. I talked about this with Dr. Charlie Self. Dr. Charlie Self is a Ph.D. He has a website, drcharlieself.com, D-R, Charlie with an I-E, Self, S-E-L-F.com. And he's always been my go-to guy when it comes to anything involving American history, because that's his specialty, American history. I talked to him about the citizenship issue, and he makes it very, very clear. The progressives want an open border, and they want to fast-track voting rights in order to maintain power. Here's Dr. Self
1: citizenship issue sort of boils down to one's vision for whether that really makes a difference or not. And we have, we have, and I'm I'm always trying to be really kind and not paint people with too broad a brush, but we have a progressive and globalist agenda that essentially wants to open the border uh, to all but the most overt terrorism and And essentially offer the fastest pathway to voting rights possible, because in the minds of these folks, that will enable them to stay in power. Um, At the same time, uh, we have, you know, whole bunches of people that want to become citizens uh, the legal and right way, and they don't always end up voting uh, in any particular kind of block. So, the contemporary agenda really is a new thing in American history, although the census history is fascinating with all the different ways and, and uh, situations around it. So um, in the end, it's to make sure that all the states are properly represented, and the brilliance of the, of the bicameral legislature, the brilliance of the electoral college, all enabled local and state government to have a far greater say and the federal government in people's everyday life.
0: So you just heard Dr. Self talk about the bicameral legislature. That would be the House of Representatives and the Senate. And then he talked about the Electoral College. The Electoral College is rather complex, but it's brilliant. You know, when, when the founders of the United States of America came together, these were very learned men who had studied the history of the world and they wanted to put together something that might provide people with a governmental system that would be less likely to become tyrannized. James Madison, of course, one of the founders, said this, Every word of the Constitution ultimately decides a question between power and liberty. Power and liberty. I think the Founding Fathers would be completely surprised— by the current controversy over the Electoral College. I mean, it is provided for in the Constitution, and when they were crafting this Constitution, believe it or not, the Electoral College was one of the least controversial provisions of this new compact. When they were debating, you know, the the Constitution for ratification, Alexander Hamilton was writing in something called the Federalist Papers. He said, quote, "...the mode of appointment..." Of the chief magistrate of the United States, the president, is almost the only part of the system of any consequence which has escaped without severe censure or which has received the slightest mark of approbation from its opponents. In other words, of all the things they discussed, that was the one thing that everybody on both sides understood. Okay, yeah, electoral college, brilliant. We need this. Absolutely. 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 And it was completely accepted by everyone once they understood what it was all about until there was this explosive growth of urban America. When you had the explosive growth of urban America, the cities, and the decline of rural populations, and the shifting influence brought on by the opening of the West and even the restoration of the South for that matter, the question was seriously all of a sudden raised. Well, what about this? You mean a president can be elected not by the majority, but by these electoral college voters? And then, of course, it really came to a head in 2000. There were rumblings, there were rumblings, there were rumblings, but then in 2000 it hit the fan. The issue was thrust before the American people like never before because Vice President Al Gore, the Democrat candidate, actually won a slim majority of the popular vote. Nonetheless, Governor George Bush, the Republican candidate, secured a slight advantage in the electoral college system, thus winning the presidency. As a result, suddenly there were calls for the abolition of this constitutional system of election. We can't have the electoral college. The will of the people has been ignored by an archaic system, some said, that fails to weigh every vote fairly and equally. And, of course, these critics are out there to this very day demanding that the Electoral College be scrapped for a more direct election process. But, but let's talk further about this, because this is the system we have, and I believe it's a brilliant system. And you'll hear more from Dr. History in just a moment. Rather than voting in a direct popular election, U.S. citizens in each state technically choose between slates of electors that represent each party. Taken together, the winning electors form the Electoral College. There are 538 of these electors. With each state getting one elector for each representative and senator it has, the electors meet after the November popular election to cast their votes and officially elect the president. You don't even know who these people are, which is even better. Because it's not like they're out there on MSNBC trying to get airtime or Fox News trying to get airtime, or whatever, Uh, this is is a very silent body who are very well-read on the issues, and they pay attention to the details of each candidate and their positions, etc. Now, the framers of the Constitution preferred this electoral system to a direct popular election for several reasons. Alexander Hamilton said this, a small number of persons selected by their fellow citizens from the general mass will be most likely to possess the information and discernment requisite to such complicated investigations. In other words, when you look at what the person stands for, the candidate, stands for where they are in the various issues uh, and, and the like, it would be these electors who will be able to make the decision on behalf of the people who have voted them into a position of authority whereby they can be a part of this college. And and I should also mention that he said this: the Electoral College would promise an effectual security measure against mischief. Against mischief. I mean, when you think about it, how many people come to the polls and they don't even know what the heck they're voting for? An uninformed uninformed electorate. Now Critics of the Electoral College say its chief fault is that a president can be elected without winning a majority of the popular vote. In fact, a president with a minority of the popular vote has won the Electoral College vote 16 times in U.S. history. 16 times, and that included Donald Trump in 2016. Perhaps more ominously, critics also argue that because the Constitution allows electors to use their discretion, there is a possibility of a faithless elector not casting his vote for the people's choice, but for his own. And of course, something like this could happen because we as human beings are not perfect. But nonetheless, we have been given a wonderful system of checks and balances. So what exactly is the value of the Electoral College? Well, I asked Dr. Self
1: the Electoral College was designed so that every state's um, electors or every state's uh, vote, as it were, really count, because the founders and framers understood that government was primarily local and state and not primarily federal, and at the same time, they wanted to, again, make sure that large population centers didn't over-dominate and that every state added to the union and formed had a, had a real voice. So, for instance, if we were to eliminate the Electoral College tomorrow and just go by popular vote, and we won't do this because it's, it's far too complex a, uh, a challenge, but if we were to do that, then your, your 20 or 30 largest urban areas would dominate, and uh, candidates would never go out to the highways and byways and talk to regular Americans uh, in, the flyover, in what they call the flyover states. They wouldn't go out and listen. To the aspirations and needs of, of folks in, in, smaller, in smaller places. So um, the founders and the framers were brilliant to make sure everybody felt represented.
0: They were brilliant. Where did they come up with this idea? Had this ever well, been attempted before?
1: Well, they, they were inspired by Parliament, but they wanted to make adaptations so that a larger voting constituency beyond landowners was just represented. But they were also fearful of democracy being temporary mob rule of 51 percent that could be manipulated and by having some checks and balances here not only in the electoral college not only in the bicameral legislature but also with executive authority and the veto with the judiciary making sure the laws passed align with the constitution by having all these checks and balances they allow people to be represented and at the same time they limit the power of the federal government uh, as opposed to the unwieldy leviathan that we've evolved to.
0: Pure democracy. The, the left is all about democracy. There's an organization called Democracy Now. Could you please explain the dangers of pure democracy?
1: Well, it, it rarely, um, of course, part of the problem is who's voting and who decides who votes. So there is There's rarely been a culture and history ever sustained by a pure democracy. Uh, Even in the Greek experiments, it was only particular kinds of citizens that were given the vote.
0: Getting back to pure democracy for just a moment, the founders expressly and explicitly rejected the idea of pure democracy because, as James Madison declared, quote, democracies have ever been spectacles of turbulence and contention, democracies have ever been spectacles of turbulence and contention, have ever been found incompatible with personal security or the rights of property, and have in general been as short in their lives as they have been violent in their deaths. That is deep. I want to repeat that. Democracies have ever been spectacles of turbulence and contention, have ever been found incompatible with personal security or the rights of property, and have in general been as short in their lives as they have been violent in their deaths. The rule of the majority, he went on to say, does not always respect the rule of law. You see, the Electoral College was originally designed, as Dr. History was saying by these founders, as... A federal hedge against the domination of the absolute national majority over individual states. The states have rights. We are the United States of America. The federal design ultimately means that the Electoral College is a hedge of protection against several aspects of pure numerical democracy. It's not going to be mob rules. It's not going to be mobocracy. Political scientist James Whitson used a sports analogy because, again, the Electoral College is... It's not easy to explain to people. So he came up with this analogy. In a baseball season, you don't play 100-odd games, add up your total runs from all those games, and the team's with the most runs play in the World Series. (laughs) Teams would just run up the score on the weaker teams to balance the closer games against the tougher opponents. So when you look at it from that particular angle, it really starts to make sense. But getting back to citizenship for just one moment, I asked Dr. History about this. Why is it okay for Canada and Mexico to ask about citizenship in their census. Why is it that the United Nations is okay with countries asking people within their borders about citizenship? Why is it that the left has such a problem with this here in the United States of America? Here's Dr. Self.
1: Because we have somewhere between 10 and 20 million or more people who are not here in full legal status. And what they're concerned about is that, you know, there's a compassionate part of that to Mm -hmm. worry that there'd be mass deportations or disruption. But the other the other more manipulative and political side is um, that what they want is the fastest pathway to these folks, uh, you know, getting getting voting rights with the assumption that they're going to vote left. Um, So. Part of the problem is we have we have some political thinkers on the left questioning whether citizenship itself doesn't need to be redefined, and uh, that that's problematic because once it's okay to have a resident alien status, it's okay to be here legally under any number of visas, but citizenship carries with it both opportunities and obligations. It carries with it a loyalty to the country as well as the country then Uh, offering you particular protections. And out of misplaced compassion, they're worried that that these non-citizens won't get benefits or they won't be treated kindly or they'll somehow be marked for persecution. That's part of the paranoia. The other side of it is if we created a better immigration system and brought people out of the shadows and allowed a normalization to take place, uh, we wouldn't have this problem.
0: You're always a guy who looks at the the cup uh, half full, sometimes I tend to look at it as half empty, and that's why I like <laughs> to surround myself with guys like you, because you do get me, you, you improve my attitude. Uh, in terms of this divide that we have right now, there's this sharp political divide, and, and so much of it is based nowadays seemingly on race in this country, and the citizenship question, etc. Are you hopeful about America. I mean, how can we really solve these great problems that exist between the two sides right now? How can we find common ground?
1: Well, I don't think um, common ground is easily forged. I think it, there's four or five things that can be done over a period of time. Uh, first of all, we have to, we have to uh, reaffirm some of the founding values and create a new consensus about some of the values that are going to guide our public square. Uh, civil debate, deep disagreement with with peaceableness, uh, the ability to hear all sides of an issue. These kinds of things were part of our founding and need to be reaffirmed again. Um, you know, freedom of conscience, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, freedom of redress, it, uh, enshrined in the First Amendment, need to be reaffirmed, not... Some, some kind of way to manipulate others, but reaffirmed as a way to uh, really debate issues. So that's, that's the first thing. Secondly, there has to be moral and spiritual awakening in people. Uh, there have to be transcendent values that are more than just current legislation, more than just current um, political opinion, that, that allow a, a certain kind of consensus and a certain kind of principled living Because what we've lost, Brian, is the principle of subsidiarity. And that's a fancy word for saying it starts with the individual, the family, the local voluntary associations, the local government, then state. And what we've done over the last hundred years is we're looking to Washington to solve problems that are in our own hands to solve. And so we have to have a, a real awakening and a return to the primacy of personal responsibility. I think a third thing is... Um, we have, one way you get the shrill voices not to dominate is to, is to find ways to work together to solve problems everybody agrees are problems. Right now I'm working with a lot of groups looking at affordable housing, looking at homelessness, looking at things in a much more holistic sense and not just a dump money or avoid the problem sense that we see in so many places. And I think a fourth thing that keeps me hopeful is that, um, you know, millions of people wake wake up every day, raising their families, going to work, being productive. And as we saw in the last election, millions of people may not respond to certain polls, but they go out and and vote their conscience and vote their concerns when 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 the time comes. People may forget this, but in nineteen eighty, in spite of the terrible circumstances of the Carter administration, Uh, Reagan was slightly ahead in the polls, but nobody predicted the landslide that was going to come. And, of course, nobody predicted that Trump had a chance against the liberal media's anointed queen. And look what happened. Mm -hmm. So I think that uh, the way, not so much being negative, but the way we marginalize the shrill voices, the way we take some of these partisans out of the picture, is by having this kind of renewal.
0: My goodness, and what a concept. A renewal. A renewal first spiritually, and then a renewal in terms of sanity. And you heard it right here on Hidden Headlines. Faith, family, freedom. I'm Brian Sussman. Again, more about me and this particular podcast at briansussman.com. Also follow me on Facebook, Brian Sussman Show. Twitter, Brian underscore Sussman. Thanks for listening. God bless you. And until next time, this is me signing off.